Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I have no degrees in the topics I talk about on the show. If you notice an error, especially if you are an expert in the area, please correct me. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I do swear and I don't cut it out. So listener discretion is also advised. And this is episode 65 of Living Through Extinction, a short, to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today I'll be talking about how the accepted meaning of organic has changed during my lifetime, some dead waterways resulting from textile factories, the little blue penguins of New Zealand, sun protection, and a skeptical children's book based on Carl Sagan's Dragon in My Garage analogy. I would have had this book for my kids for sure if it had existed when they were small. If you have joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. Organic. Up until rather recently in history, organic had a very specific meaning. There was organic and inorganic. Organic being carbon-based life or the remains of carbon-based life, inorganic being rocks, sand, lava, etc. But today it has a whole different meaning. As Harriet Hall put it in an article in Science-Based Medicine, quote, They have taken what was once a very precise term in chemistry and have perverted it to search their ideological agenda, unquote. She jokes about foods being labeled organic and trying to picture inorganic versions of these foods, like a cucumber rock, maybe? Organic is now a food label. It means that the foods with this label were grown and tended to based on specific guidelines. In the U.S., the USDA has strict standards that must be met in order to acquire organic certification on foods. These relate to pesticide, weed control, fertilizer and hormone, and additive use, as well as soil quality and animal raising practices. Organic in this way cannot mean one thing, or have a specified definition, as the rules and regulations for organic certifications in different countries may vary. The largest argument against organics has to be that we will never be able to feed our growing populations with organic farming practices. It produces so much less per acre, and each field dedicated to organic crops is a whole lot less food available for market. Organic crops take up an absurd amount of land, land we need today for carbon sequestering and solar and wind farms. They're also more labor and time intensive. Some farmers find that due to the increased time and labor without the more industrial methods, they are not able to take care of as much land as they may have at one time, which can also bring down food availability. Then there's the whole process of becoming certified. That itself can be both costly and difficult. And finally, all of these factors lead to higher prices. So much higher in some cases that they are absolutely not an option for people barely surviving on low incomes with strict budgets. Non-organics, on the other hand, are able to produce much more food per acre. They see minimal loss to insects, they have a much longer shelf life, they are reliably consistent, and they produce a lot less waste. One thing to keep in mind if you prefer and can afford to purchase organic is that increased demand has led to sourcing these products from China. 
The labeling and certification requirements and practices are much more questionable on these items. They are known to have poor pesticide requirements in China. There have been cases of Chinese companies being fined for outright fake organic labels. So don't just look for the organic label by itself. Check to make sure it's an organic grown on the continent you live on. The closer to home, the better. Another thing to remember is that organic foods have a much higher spoilage than non-organics, especially for foods that are transported great distances. You may have to have the ability to shop more frequently, which isn't always possible for many people. The best and most affordable way to eat organic is to shop local and to know your farmers. Speak with them at your local fruit and veggie stand about how they grow their food. Many of these farmers may be using organic methods, but not going through the certification process, so they don't have to increase their prices to cover it. By shopping local, you are also saving on transport emissions and you are supporting small businesses. Way better than looking for organic labels at the supermarket. And let me be clear, nobody, especially people on a budget, should feel bad about avoiding the higher priced organics. Yes, even if you have kids. There have been no studies to show any less nutrition value in non-organic fruits and veggies than organic fruits and veggies. Just make sure you get them to eat fruits and vegetables and don't worry about the organic labels. If buying organic means you can't afford to eat enough, then it's not worth it. Organic milk and non-organic milk have the same protein, mineral, lipid, and vitamin content. You are not depriving your kids of anything if you do not buy organic milk. Make sure you can afford to fill their bellies before looking for organic labels. Some may be concerned about the fact that non-organic milk may contain growth hormones, but we know that those are completely degraded by our stomach acids and cause absolutely no physiological impacts on human beings. Some may be concerned about the fact that non-organic milk may contain sex steroids. The content of these is very low. Think about it like being mercury in apples. Despite the fact that apples contain mercury, we still eat them, right? At least I do. That's because the mercury content of an apple is not enough to matter in any way whatsoever. That's what these sex steroids levels are like in milk. It's always the dose that matters in the end. I could eat two apples a day for the rest of my life and never ingest enough mercury to make a difference to me in any way whatsoever. If pesticides are your main concern, then there are foods that already have very low pesticide use and remain more affordable than organics, such as avocados, cantaloupe, pineapple, broccoli, cabbage and corn. While organics will have less pesticides, they will not necessarily be pesticide-free. There are certain chemicals that are permitted, and when nearby crops are treated, the pesticides do tend to find their way over to the organic fields. But it's not going to be in the same levels as crops treated directly, so organics will be the choice for you if the pesticides are your number one concern. Just don't think those levels are zero, because they certainly are not. When it comes to this non-chemistry term of organic, keep all of the information in mind when making your decisions. If you choose to go organic, that's fine. Just know that this is a luxury our growing population really won't be able to afford for long. If you can't afford organic for your family, don't let that get you down. Don't let anyone tell you that you are giving them anything less than. You are not. The existence or non-existence of the label organic on a product does not always mean what we may think it does. Look into all the factors. Be skeptical, damn it. On episode 9, Jason and I covered clothing and textiles and the absurd damage they do to local environments. One of Dhaka's main waterways, the, okay, let's see if I can say this, the Buriganga River is black and dead in some parts. 
this is in Bangladesh, by the way. The edges of these waters used to be where people would make their homes, but over time, garment factories took over. Now at least 300 of these factories are discharging their untreated wastewater into these once beneficial rivers. Sludge from these factories has wiped out marine life in these areas, and the waters actually run black in some places. What life survived the poisoning died out from lack of oxygen as it's been choked right out of the river. Ferrymen who work the river are suffering from coughs and skin rashes. One gentleman who was told by his doctor to leave the river said that just wasn't possible. This was his only job. This was his only way of feeding himself. After the Independence War left the people in a state of devastation 50-some years ago, the nation had an economic comeback thanks to these factories. So feelings are understandably mixed. Their economy came back so fast and so strong that they overtook India in per capita income. The garment trade employs millions of people, and it makes up to 80% of the country's annual $50 billion in exports. That's a hell of a comeback, and nothing to laugh at. But it's completely killing their waterways. Toxic dyes, tanning acids, and other dangerous chemicals, as well as ammonia, phenol, and other byproducts of the dyeing process, are taking out more areas of water every year. When samples were taken, the chromium and cadmium levels were over six times the recommended maximum levels by the World Health Organization. The reason there are recommended maximums is that excessive exposure to either of these is considered to be extremely dangerous to human health. It can cause lung damage, kidney damage, premature births, and more. And it may surprise you to hear that there are regulations, but this is one of those nations where the rich own and pay off regulators and politicians. And when someone speaks up or complains, they are silenced. Sounds kind of like how I expect things will be going in the U.S. after the Republicans regain power. The rich will get to destroy everything around them and stay happy in their bubbles with their expensive bottled water and fuck the rest of the world. At this time, more than a quarter of Bangladesh's over 200 waterways is heavily contaminated with industrial pollutants, and that is growing, not receding. Five rivers around Dhaka are already technically dead, with no marine life whatsoever. And factories continue to open in other locations, putting even more of the country's water at risk. As usual, it's the poor and the hardworking who will suffer. You can bet that the owners of these factories who are actually responsible for the damage to the rivers and ecosystems are in climate-controlled homes with fridges full of clean bottled water and not a worry in the world. After all, it doesn't affect them. The little blue penguins of New Zealand. I think I saw them referred to as fairy penguins somewhere, but that may have just been a one-off. The little blue penguins are the smallest in the world and probably the cutest, unless there's a species I haven't seen yet, but it's hard to think of how a penguin could get any cuter than this. Since May, there has been a rather horrific sight on the northernmost coast of New Zealand as hundreds of little blue bodies have begun washing into shore. While it was a mystery at first, examination of the penguins and the habitats has offered a most plausible explanation, and the root is definitely climate change. These little penguins are good divers, but their diving abilities are best put to use in more shallow waters. They can go about 65 to 100 feet below the surface of the Pacific. This was plenty deep enough for a long time, but then the temperature of the ocean began to rise. The fish they normally eat have begun to hang out in deeper waters because that's where the temperatures are slightly cooler and more comfortable. They have gone a little too far for the little blue penguins to be able to reach, and these fish are their main 
if not only source of protein. So with their nutrition out of reach, they're just losing weight and they end up either starving to death or passing from hypothermia because they're not able to maintain their blubber layer that keeps them warm. More than 500 little blue penguins died this spring and it's apparently still going on. If you don't believe in the fact of global warming, I think these penguins and those who study them would harshly disagree with you. Last episode, I talked about our options for doing better when it comes to sun protection. While there are some things that we can do at this time, there are technologies coming around the bend that will hopefully give us more options that are better for the environment and our own health in the near future. Insect protections are similar to sun protections in that they're required. We can't just go, these are bad, so we're going to say goodbye to them. The number of diseases insect protection can guard from is huge. If we just take into consideration three insect types, mosquitoes, sandflies, and blackflies, that's protection from two types of parasites and a shitload of viruses and other things that are very bad for humans. Sandflies transmit the parasite leishmaniasis. Blackflies transmit the parasite onchocerciasis. Mosquitoes transmit malaria, West Nile, dengue fever, Zika virus, encephalitis, and more. Admittedly, most of these are more of a problem in warmer nations, but we still have transmissions of certain viruses occur here in the north when we have a very mosquito-y summer. Many of the ingredients in our insect protection are unfortunately also bioaccumulative, which means they're building up in our systems and those of the affected environment. Insect repellents contain two types of ingredients. There are the active ingredients, which, as the word implies, actively work to repel the insects. These ingredients must be listed on the labels according to law. Then there are the inert ingredients, which are everything else. This can include scent, solvents, preservatives, or anti-caking or anti-foaming agents. Please note that none of these ingredients have to be listed. Many of the active ingredients are extremely harmful to both us and the environment. Large doses of DEET have been linked to skin irritation and even blisters, seizures, memory loss, headaches, stiffness in the joints, shortness of breath, and more. It's also been linked to neurotoxicity, which has the potential to lead to physiological and behavioral problems, motor skills and learning issues, and memory dysfunction. It absorbs super fast through our skin. In fact, one place I read said that approximately 48% of applied doses are absorbed within six hours. When we combine DEET insect repellent with the most common sun ingredient, oxybenzone, which I described last episode, it actually absorbs even more quickly. DEET has been shown to cross the placenta. Animal studies have shown that DEET continues to be found in newborns up to three months old of exposed mothers. And it also breaks down very slowly, which is how it so readily contaminates our ground, surface, and drinking water, all of which have had DEET detected in them. Another common ingredient for insect repellent is permethrin. This is the chemical used to treat bug-resistant clothing and mosquito nets. I believe I read somewhere that basic outdoor gear is also often treated with it as well. I presume that means things like tents and backpacks. It's also common in bug sprays and pesticides for crops. This chemical has also been linked to neurotoxicity. It does this by acting on sodium ion channels, causing repeated nerve impulses. It can also affect the function of chloride channels, which may cause seizures. Exposure to newborns impairs their working memory by interfering with their neural processing in the frontal lobe of their brain. It's also been linked to the death of neural cells in various parts of the brain, which could potentially lead to physiological and behavioral issues and or problems with motor skills, learning, and memory. Permethrin is also toxic to fish, aquatic life, and bees. 
Cyfluthrin, another common repellent ingredient, is known to accumulate in fatty tissues. Like the previous two, it is also linked to neurotoxicity. It interferes with the sodium and potassium ion channels in the nerves. This can result in loss of coordination, muscle trembles, and changes in a person's usual behavior. The effects of cyfluthrin on the blood is damaging to us. It causes decreased glucose and red blood cells. It also disrupts our liver function. And it's also harmful to aquatic invertebrates, fish, and honeybees. The fourth and last common ingredient I would like to point out are pyrethroids. This is the name of an entire class of some of the most common repellent chemicals, so it would contain a whole list of things that I'm not going to go into individually. If you look up pyrethroids, you will be able to find out what's all included. These chemicals are lipophilic, which means they love fat cells. These chemicals have been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier, and this can end up being toxic to the central nervous system. The World Health Association considers them neuropoisons, and they've also been classified as carcinogens. Reactions to these chemicals can include dermatitis, asthma-like symptoms, nausea, incoordination, and burning and itching sensations. The most severe poisoning cases are reported in infants as their systems are not able to break it down as effectively as adults can. They have also been linked to endocrine disruption. And again, of course, they're toxic to fish and aquatic life. There are things we need to consider when it comes to our children. Yes, we want to keep them safe from mosquitoes and other insects that may give them disease. But we should also probably consult recommendations. The American Academy of Pediatrics does not recommend using insect repellent on children younger than two months. And they also recommend that any repellent used on a child not contain more than 30% DEET. Oil of lemon or eucalyptus should not be used on children under three. The CDC recommends that DEET not be used on children under two. There are things we can do, of course, to minimize our need for repellents. I used to put a net over the wagon we'd pull my son around in, and he loved it. Kept him safe, didn't have to put anything on him. We should always make sure there are not random bits of water sitting on our property. If we have rain barrels, we should be putting vegetable oil in them, enough to make a layer across the top of the barrel. If the top of the water is covered in oil, the mosquitoes will not be able to lay their eggs there. On bad mosquito evenings, wear light, long sleeves and pants. If it's really bad, rather than bathe in repellent, use a mosquito suit. You know, those netted tops with hoods and masks and matching netted leggings? Sexy! Of course, just like sun protection clothing, not everyone is in the position to just go out and buy these things on a whim. We do need to keep that in mind when setting expectations. When looking for an all-natural repellent, there are some that are safe for both us and the environment. Look for the following to be listed as the active ingredients. Lemon eucalyptus oil lemongrass, cedarwood, peppermint, citronella, or rosemary. Please keep in mind that while these make great all-natural ingredients for an insect repellent, buying the essential oil versions of these plants and using them undiluted could be dangerous. As I talked about in episode 56, essential oils are extremely concentrated and most can cause toxicity issues if used straight up, even the ones I just listed. I go into some of the specific dangers of different oils on that episode. It's great to try to do what's best for the environment, but make sure it's safe for you too. Don't forget that you also matter. On episode 57, I talked about Carl Sagan, and of course the dragon in my garage analogy had to be a part of that. It's very commonly referred to in skeptical communities. As the questioner comes up with ways to test for it, the claimer keeps moving the goalposts, so to speak. With each question, the claimer reveals a new feature of the supposed dragon. Can I see it? No, it's invisible. 
Can I see its footsteps then? Nope, it floats. That kind of thing. Well, there are these really amazing kids' books, the Annabelle and Aiden series, which focuses on science, critical thinking, and secular topics. Yes, I would have bought them all if they had been available when I had toddlers. I spent so much time looking for books like this, but the options were very slim 16 years ago. Anyway, I'm very glad that this form of kids' book is becoming more common now. The latest Annabelle and Aiden book, as you've probably guessed by now, is There's a Dragon in My Garage. Oh my gosh, this would have been so awesome when my kids were small. This makes me very happy. So I'm just going to go ahead and read you all the synopsis. Quote, There's a live, fire-breathing, living dragon in my garage, Hilbert claims. But when Annabelle and Aiden use engineering and critical thinking skills to investigate, they don't find a dragon, but rather something far more magical and impressive than anyone might expect. A celebration of scientific investigation and engineering. Unquote. Doesn't that sound awesome? It warms my heart to see today's skeptical and secular parents having so much more to choose from than I did when I had little ones. That's it for episode 65. This episode should come out the week after my surgery, so hopefully nothing happens to delay the release and you are hearing this on July 28th as scheduled. Thank you so much for listening. I hope your health and sanity will be replenished daily. I would like to express my eternal gratitude to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram or playing live with Toad Turner. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Facebook at Toad Turner The Chronicles. Instagram at Prairie Soul Music, or see him playing live with Toad Turner. And finally, thank you to my family who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles, and making notes for hours of time so I can actually do this podcast thing, because otherwise I'd probably waste all this learning time playing video games. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 66 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.